0: I'm Nicole Antoinette, and this is Real Talk Radio, a podcast filled with honest conversations about everything. In a moment, you'll get to meet today's guest, Rachel Ann Jolie. But first, I want to share that our show will be on hiatus for the month of April, returning in May with all new episodes. This hiatus, it's all because of a question that I've been thinking about for the past few weeks. Well, I think I've, I've been thinking about it for longer than the past few weeks, but the past few weeks specifically. And it's a question that always seems to nudge me when I'm out on a quiet walk or when I'm in the shower or when I'm laying in bed at night, which are all the times when I tend to be the most honest with myself. And that question that's been coming up is, how would it feel to slow down? The deeper that I go into my anti-capitalist learning, which is very much part of what we talk about in today's episode, and, you know, the more I do that kind of unpacking, combined with my desire to continually and actively divest from the urgency of right supremacy culture, I find myself wondering how we might make our lives, our work, and our world just more sustainable for everyone, it's a huge question, I know that. And oftentimes, those huge sticky questions, they make me really freeze up and I get really overwhelmed. You know, I can't possibly answer that big of a question, so I guess I'll just keep doing things the way that I've been doing them. But you know what, I don't think that has to be the case. Just because I can't solve the frantic and often extractive pace of the entire Western world does not mean that there isn't value in exploring what it would look like to slow down in my own little corner of the world. And that brings us to my April experiment, which is larger than just putting the podcast on hiatus. As you might know by now, I think I've talked about this in various places a bunch of times, I plan my life and business quarterly, and I have a big emphasis that I put on experimentation, just trying stuff and see what happens. And I'm kicking off Q2, right, the second quarter of the year with what feels sort of like my most challenging experiment yet, a month of no public sharing of any kind, Maybe that doesn't sound like it would be a challenge for you, but it definitely is for me. I'm going to be instead going into what I'm calling cave mode, letting everything that I've read and learned and felt in the past few months integrate more fully. I want to read the books that I already have instead of you know buying new books. I want to keep my phone far away from my bed and away from my face during mealtimes. I want to look through all of the many, many notes that I seem to have scribbled in various journals and in the notes app and my phone in hopes of taking those notes and And really distilling them into a larger picture of what's been on my mind and what I might like to create next as a writer, as a facilitator of honest conversations, right here on this podcast. Also, I want to take time to rest. And then I want to rest some more. And more after that. I want to free myself from the external pressure. It's not even external pressure. Sometimes it's the internal pressure to feel like I have to have, you know, a hot take and a sharp opinion on everything in real time. I want to move at my own pace, and I'm hoping that as a result, I can do deeper, slower, and more thoughtful work. So... Specifically, some of the things that I'm not going to be doing in April. I'm not going to publish podcast episodes. I'm not going to be facilitating weekly discussion threads or writing weekly personal essays over on my column. Good question. Not going to host live gatherings or calls of any kind. I'm not going to post on Instagram, neither on my grid nor in my stories. Basically, it's no public sharing of any kind for 30 straight days, which I honestly don't think I've ever done in my whole entire adult life. (laughs) That's something else done back uh, another time, maybe. And yeah, in April, what am I going to do? A bunch of the stuff that I already mentioned. I want to write a lot. I'm really interested in the experience of having many, many hours to write without that writing needing to be immediately like turned around and published, sort of the way that it is for a blog. And I want to do some work on my business instead of just in my business. And yeah. Um, You know, that means a bunch of different things. But one of the the questions that I'm asking myself is maybe how could I simplify and streamline my offerings? What might that look like? And to do a really radical reimagining of the way that I'm operating. Also, in April, I'm going to be moving full time back into my van, driving across the country, back to Oregon. So that will take both time and intention and getting settled in and just generally slowing way, way down. So now, my invitation for you, if you would like to play along a little bit in your own version of a slowing down experiment, whatever that looks like for you, if I think back at various points in my life, slowing down has looked like you know, purposefully ending work 15 minutes earlier just to lay on the floor in silence. It has looked like unsubscribing from a lot of podcasts and email newsletters, so I'm not having so much input, so much noise, going for walks without my phone, saying no to social plans, Zoom calls, whatever, so that I can take a hot bath, deleting social media for a week or a month or more, asking for an extension on a deadline if I don't have the capacity to meet that deadline. Those are just like some things that I can think of from my past. But an April downshift might look really different for you depending on your circumstances. But if you're craving a little bit of a slower pace in any area of your life or in your life overall, this is my invitation for you to join me. And to the folks in our Patreon community, Oh, I just want to say thank you so much for making this a community where experimentation and sustainability are celebrated and prioritized and where everyone, including me, gets to work on being truly human. You can find that community at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And otherwise, after this episode, I will see you back here on Monday, May 3rd. Okay, let me introduce you to Rachel and Jolie. Rachel's a writer, educator, and the author of Rust Belt Femme, which was a finalist for the Heartland Booksellers Award for Best Nonfiction and was named in NPR's Favorite Books of 2020. It's so good. Highly recommend you get a copy. She's a longtime punk, vegan, and left activist. And in this conversation, she talks to us about anti capitalism, her experience of leaving academia and losing part of her career identity. We talk about how much money is enough money, not that either of us have good answers to that question, and more. Happy listening. All right, we are good to go. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. All right. So the desert island game that we are going to play, you are being sent to a desert island and you can bring one book, one snack, and one skincare or makeup product. What do you choose? Oh my gosh. Okay. The hard hitting journalism, like right off the bat. No, for real.
1: Okay. <laughs> um. Oh my goodness. Okay. A book, one single book. Holy cow. Oh, okay. It would be a toss up between something like... Well, I will not say something like I will say specifically Tiny Beautiful Things, the Dear Sugar, Cheryl Strayed, like, you know, her column consolidated into a book because it's just like good medicine, you know, to sort of read that probably when you're isolated and alone. And I return to that book a lot or, okay, this is like categories. So that or children when things fall apart just to like have like some like grounding in in the chaos of being on a desert island would be or this is going to be kind of an outlier but oh gosh this is so hard I'm sorry I'm t- already incredibly cheating but these are <laughs> all like or 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 so it's still ultimately one um I think we might talk a little bit about this. I, I come out of academia. I'm a theory nerd. I really like theory. And like, that sounds like a thing you wouldn't want to read on a, on an Island, but I really love Robin DG Kelly's writing and Judith Butler's writing where they're just like theorists that I could just like read them, like talk about big ideas in fancy ways. And, um, so possibly like an academic book, which is strange because I have a lot of problems with academia. Okay, so that's book. I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna shift. So book, snack. Um... Oh gosh, these are really hard questions. Uh, like, can I? Can the snack be made in a blender? Can I have access to a blender? Sure. Yeah, Fancy okay. Island. You get whatever you want. Great. Okay. Um, then definitely smoothies. I think because I could, I could get some variety. Like if I choose the the category of smoothie, I could get some variety. I am a person who feels better if I'm like eating, you know, fresh vegetables and so I'll just throw spinach and whatever, you know, delicious thing I'm creating. And then a makeup item that, okay, here's my cheat with this. I get eyelash extensions, or at least I did regularly before pandemic times. So I would come in with fabulous eyelashes already, but I would bring lipstick too. Mm -hmm. Okay. What color? Oh gosh. So normally it would be red, but... I'll go with red. I was going to qualify that, but I'm going to go with red. I like that
0: without context, if we gave someone the answer of red lipstick, like smoothies with spinach and Pema Chodron, and they had to figure (laughs) out what the question
1: was. (laughs) (laughs) I also Uh. sort of appreciate that like, that's like probably not an uncommon pairing for like, I don't know, a lot of elder millennial, probably women out there. I don't know. Yeah. It's probably like makes sense to people. No, I,
0: I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm very into all of those things. I The two folks that you mentioned when you were talking about academia and theorists, I haven't read their work, but Tiny Beautiful Things and When Things Fall Apart are two of my like all-time favorite, you know, what so I call good. Desert Island books. So yeah. after you said both of those, my immediate thing was, okay, we're going to be friends in real life. And <laughs> I hope that you're prepared. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, this makes me want to ask you maybe a slightly more serious or like broader version of this same question, what makes you feel most like you? Like what's like peak Rachel stuff, whether it's activities Mm. or surroundings, or I don't know, what makes you feel like you?
1: I guess a semblance of my routine. I went from, you know, having history of disordered eating and body stuff that led to an unhealthy relationship with exercise to what now feels like an incredibly incredibly healthy and wonderful relationship with exercise. So like exercising every morning is like my thing and I want to do it. I don't need to do it. Um, which is also kind of a relatively new shift that I could actually like frame it that way. But that feels like me. It feels good to like wake up and do that thing that I like know that I am going to do probably, I'm going to probably choose to do it every day, even though I can also am in a place where I could choose not to, but that I but I feel like me when I do. Um, Some kind of, whether it's clothes or makeup, usually a combination of both that feels femme. So some kind of femme, wearing something femme that I tried and when the pandemic started and I wasn't leaving the house, I tried to like not put on makeup and just like wear comfy clothes or whatever and it just like didn't work for me. I just and nobody, you know, my partner saw me, but um we've been together for a while. I don't I don't need to like you know try to super I wasn't I wasn't like performing for him, but it was like for me I needed to put on the makeup that I put on and I needed to, you know, have some kind of like cute cute clothing item that felt like me and probably like the t- like music on in the background that feels very like music's a huge part of my life. So like having a particular kind of music also would make me feel like me.
0: Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I have not worn what my friend Carrie calls hard pants, like basically (laughs) since before the pandemic. And as someone Mm -hmm. who has worked from home for a really long time and has never really been in a need to get ready in the morning type of Job, or at least not in quite a long time, and the extent of that was like retail, right? Which was not as much as as for other people. It's interesting the relationships that you build with getting ready, whatever that means to you. And so, hearing that it's like, oh, you didn't have to, but doing some semblance of that for yourself makes you feel good. Like being able to realize, oh, I'm doing this for me, and not necessarily for anyone else. There's something in that that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, two follow-up questions that came up, um, unrelated to each other probably, but when you mentioned that your relationship with exercise has really changed, I'm curious if you're open to sharing, you know, what you think attributed to that change. And then I'm also curious to know how you met your partner. Wow. It was,
1: lots of time is something that that shift required. I started, I started having like sort of an, a pleasurable relationship to exercise probably in high school where I actually found, I was like, I did literally like Tybo VHS tapes of like old Billy Blanks, like workouts um, in my living room. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Wait, sidebar. How old are you? (laughs) I'm 36.
0: Okay. I'll be 36 in a couple of months. I figured from reading your book too, like a couple of the just different cultural references and timing, I was like, I think we're like almost exactly the same age. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Did you graduate in 03? Uh, From high
0: school, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yep. Um, yes. So yeah, so typo, which was, which was important to me because I like attempted to do sports kind of like in elementary school and middle school. And I just like, I did, I was not, I was not sport. Like I was not sporty. (laughs) I did not excel in sports. So to like have movement that felt like fun was exciting, but, but that was concurrent with in high school, honestly, it was probably like actual anorexia given, given the, how, how little I ate. I was also struggled with bulimia. And so it was pleasurable movement, but it was also like very, very goal oriented, um, you know, to get to like shrink my body. And that was the case. I mean, goal oriented exercise that I actually enjoyed, but that served very much a purpose of getting smaller lasted for years and years and years. I think the thing that shifted it, I mean, one, I was living with the thing that a lot of feminists live with, which is that I was like a punk activist feminist who, you know, read zines that said, riot, don't diet. And I was dieting. <laughs> like I was living with that contradiction. So I think being immersed in a culture that like, even if you're, you're living that contradiction, like at least I was, I was all of the sort of whatever Hollywood magazines, et cetera, that, that we, you know, we grew up with, um, because we didn't have Instagram to compare ourselves to people on. But that was all like sort of being balanced by like, cool, fat positive punk, you know, people of all genders. So that was part of it, certainly, like being part of punk and activist scenes, and you know, like learning feminism in school. And then also like, really shifting, I guess. Yeah, so the vegan food blog world of like the 2010s, like 2009, 2010 ish, probably, maybe a little bit later, also introduced me to some really amazing, mostly women who were also sort of navigating being vegan and like interested in like wellness from sort of radical feminist perspectives. Muffy Davis, who I know is a mutual friend of ours, was one of those people. And just so having just like a community of people who were like struggling with the same things, um, being able to sort of talk openly about that, blogging about that that was part of the shift. And maybe it's also just partly age too. Like it was really just like a radical acceptance of, you know, my, my body likely not ever going to be any smaller than sort of its baseline. It's like happy baseline and really just getting exhausted with hating it every single day. And that ebbed and flowed for a little bit. It wasn't like a linear path, but it was Probably a combination of of sort of everything I just mentioned there. How I met my partner. Uh, we, I went to grad school with his very best friend slash also former girlfriend, which feels nice and nice and gay. That um, yeah, that everybody's friends with their exes. And she, Angela, our friend Angela, introduced us, even though we were both in other relationships. And Angela's like a lovely, but strongly Scorpio. So we're all, we always joke that like, she totally knew what she was doing, (laughs) like (laughs) messing, messing things up by introducing us to each other. Um, But anyway, he would come to visit her in Minneapolis when we were in grad school. He lived in Michigan, also in grad school. And uh, we really, we had like one of those standing in the doorway, you know, googly eye moments and then became, you know, became friends because we were in other relationships and then we were not in other relationships and very shortly after ended up together um, after a couple of years of being friends and had a really, and just, this is the place to be really honest, um, had a really rocky, really rocky couple, a couple of years, long distance. Um, I found out I was not really set up for a long distance relationship. We found out a lot about each other. We, you know, we were getting together during my Saturn return. So just like my late and I had just left this other long-term relationship. So we had a couple of rocky years, broke up for a little bit, got back together and are going on like almost eight years or something of like solidly together for like five years, but like have been trying navigating this for like almost eight, which is wild. What do you think particularly for you made long distance relationships so challenging? Uh, it was a couple things. The, the, f- Probably, I mean, one of the primary ones is that it was um, also simultaneous to my realization and diagnosis that I had um, complex post traumatic stress disorder, and feeling the impacts of trauma that I had never worked through um, or even acknowledged as an adult for the first time, kind of ever. Like it, it became very clear to me that. I compartmentalized a bunch of stuff after I left um, home for college, grew up in Cleveland, and then went to Chicago for school, and uh, just thought I was doing fine. Like, I had, you know, a lot of tough stuff happened to me as a kid, but I just thought I was like, you know, I made it to college. I like, what could be wrong? And then I went years just sort of coasting on that. And then when I moved to Boston for my first job after grad school, I had just left this long uh, term relationship with somebody who provided me a lot of stability and uh, moved to a basement apartment with no oven and no stove all alone, feeling a lot of guilt and pain for the break from the breakup, um, feeling fear about living for the living alone. I had always lived with partners or roommates or my mom <laughs> prior to that. So that was my first time actually living alone. Lost my cat in that breakup, didn't have my cat, like just like the ground was completely ripped up, like ripped out from under me. And so of course that's sort of, like triggered trauma. And then sort of also simultaneously, I was like kind of trying to start this relationship with Logan and felt all of my abandonment stuff come up because I was like, I am hurting and in pain and you are not here to like physically like touched me. That's also when I found out that like one of my strong love languages is definitely physical touch. So it was like, I literally need you to be here and you're not here. And that felt, it felt so cruel. Like just the fact that he had to live someplace else to finish his PhD, like it felt deeply cruel. So that was rough. And so, yeah, I mean, the, really it was probably less long distance and a lot more like my life circumstances. But that long distance, like, was not tenable for for the this, the place that I was in. It's still at once I was, you know, I was did a lot of trauma work and, you know, like stabilized the sort of intensity of that moment. You know, when we were kind of getting back together and still long distance for about another nine months, and that was hard. But and I didn't like it. But there was also like a light at the end of, end of the tunnel. We had like a plan to to live together after that. So that, uh, that helped too, but yeah, it was not, not great for me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I appreciate you sharing that. I think I'm always, I mean, I'm always interested obviously in whatever people's honest stories are that they want to share, but particularly around like tough spots in relationships of various kinds. Like I've done long distance, you know, romantic relationships plenty of times for different lengths of time throughout my life. And the thing, I feel like I'm really good at it And yet, I feel like it almost... Not necessarily stunts the relationship. I'm like thinking through this out loud for like maybe the first time, but something for me that I need to be able to feel like truly vulnerable with people, which, as honest as I am in a lot of kind of public storytelling places, that honesty doesn't necessarily feel vulnerable to me. I wouldn't really be Mm -hmm. sharing it if it was, right? The vulnerability is like much deeper and, you know, it's with much fewer people. And what I need is sort of that like real time in each other's like actual messy lives like come down for breakfast with your messy hair like you're crying about this thing or there's just something about the like humanity of shared proximity that I find to be really necessary for vulnerability for me
1: yeah yeah absolutely that that makes a ton of sense I feel that so pivoting a little bit, in
0: your Instagram bio, you describe yourself as an anti-capitalist writer and educator, about which I have many questions. So I perhaps we could start f- if you would share more about what specifically you mean by that.
1: Yeah. Well, I could kind of work backwards maybe. I'm an educator because I do teach classes formally um, often. Uh, I've been teaching college classes since uh, I, I was a grad student instructor, starting in 2000. Oh my gosh, time 2010, and then um, have in some capacity taught college classes sort of since then in various states of um, job security or lack thereof. So I'm a te- so I'm a teacher. That's why I consider myself an educator, and I'm a writer because I write. Uh, I wrote a book. I write essays and. Uh, Academic work and creative nonfiction. And one of my favorite newsletters, which I will put the oh, link to thank for sure. You. It's so oh my good. goodness. Well, mutual newsletter love to you. You as you know, I love your newsletter as well. Our newsletters um, are friends. That's what I like to are. think. In the in the Need... world of internet newsletters, they're like going <laughs> yes. on coffee dates and absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, so and then the anti-capitalist part really like deeply informs how I approach uh, both of those things. I was introduced to even sort of the concept of anti-capitalism through, uh, activist work that I was involved with starting in late high school, uh, nine 11 happened, um, when I was a junior and, uh, you know, I was in a small town with a lot of, you know, conservative patriotism and I knew very quickly sort of that. I, what I was, what I wasn't, basically, and it's you know sort of it compelled me to find groups that I felt more more commonality with and more aligned with, and um, I had also been into punk music for a while at that point, and so that combination led me to to finding a sort of punk activist community in Cleveland, and they that sort of anti war. Lefty group was also, you know introduced me to anti-capitalist politics through like anarchist and communist theory and history and just you know, contemporary anti-capitalist movements and protests. So I have sort of a traditional sort of lefty activist background in terms of of that. And then that ideology is just something that feels um, incredibly important to be really vocal about, and that's something I try to sort of, that it, that like i said sort of informs my writing and my teaching like no student will get out of out of a college class of mine without you know unpacking <laughs> the the problems of capitalism the harms of capitalism and um i think it's probably pretty unlikely that any piece of my writing that you wouldn't at least get a hint that I am not a fan of our contemporary economic system in this country. Yeah. Okay. Well, then maybe I can ask you to put your
0: like teacher hat on for a second for someone maybe who isn't super familiar with what
1: anti-capitalism even means. Can you give some kind of like a 101 almost? Yeah, totally. So capitalism our economic system is you know first of all it's something that is a, a, a social construct it doesn't we we assume that it has to be that it has to be that way that it's just the way that it is but it but it's actually something that people have chosen to to put in place and e- even if we can get beyond like oh that it just has to be this way the other thing that we're also taught to believe is like, well, maybe it doesn't have to be this way, but it's it's the best way compared to all the other ways. And that's also something that's been very intentionally sort of taught and constructed by media and government, et cetera. So that system requires that uh, an exploit the, the system of capitalism requires an exploitation of labor, which means that. Somebody, the, the in Marxist terms, like the bourgeois, we could also just think of it as literally like the boss, bosses, um, uses the labor of other people who get paid less so that they can get paid more and take wealth away from workers in order to create a hierarchical system of people who have more money and less money. And capitalism needs what you know what we could call sort of informally haves and have nots um it's not just like oh this is bad when republicans are in office because they make decisions that make it harder for you know having a good minimum wage it's actually the system of capitalism itself requires that there will always be people who are in poverty because the way that labor exploitation works is that somebody um in order for some people to have profit other people have to have that profit stolen from them through their labor, which isn't just happening in the U S of course, because U S wealth also comes from the exploitation of labor in the global South and, um, across, across the globe where we're also, where there's also, you know, impoverished nations that, that capitalism is, is impacting. So I am against all of that and, you know, and, and, Although I fully acknowledge critiques of nations that have attempted communist systems, I still believe that uh, indigenous anarchist, communist ideas of how wealth could be distributed and how resources could be cared for and not exploited and shared, um, I think those ways are possible and that it's important to say, over and over and over again that those that that they are possible and that they're worth exploring and fighting for. Can
0: you share some specific examples of what does it actually look like to value and practice anti-capitalism in your real life? I am yeah, this is a hard it's a
1: hard like I mean I yeah. have like a bunch of things I could rattle off and I will, but it's it yeah, it, it feels complicated because it's the other truth is is that like when we live under capitalism, it's very hard to like, live a vacuumed, isolated, non-harmful participating in capitalist life. But I mean, and and, said, and that's
0: that's and that's true for everything, right? Like that we are all causing yeah. harm all the time, and yet right. that doesn't mean that like harm reduction, right? Like obviously, yeah. Um, but you know me; I'm obsessed with a good but how though question, right? That
1: it's like okay, so those are your values, like but how does that actually operate? Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So the one the reason I was like oh, I'm about to say the thing that I'm always like oh, okay, but <laughs> it is <laughs> the, it is important to think about like where you're making your purchases. Thinking about attempts at ethical consumption, even though there pretty much is no like actual ethical consumption under capitalism because everything is likely a product of some kind of exploitation, but can you find ways to, like you said, practice harm reduction in terms of, you know, buying local, um, clearly like Nicole, you're, uh, the way you live your life, like not owning P- property per se, those kinds of things that that make people thoughtful about consumption is what I'll say that is not that i'm I'm hesitant about that because it just sometimes it feels like, oh well, if I buy fair trade and if I buy local then like then like that's all that needs to happen, and that's actually like not that just feels like that's not. The, the root of capitalist capitalism is not what we buy, it's who makes the products. And sort of stopping capitalism is about like workers having power, not buyers having power, if that makes sense. So that's why I feel hesitant about that. So to sort of segue into that, like I actively support labor strikes. I've, my dissertation was about the labor movement. I like do labor union, like advocacy stuff. As well as, you know, anti sort of anti-capitalist education in general, like trying to sort of spread education about sort of other ways that that's possible feels to me like part of my role in being an anti-capitalist is is being an educator and a writer about those kinds of issues. And then also practicing uh, reparations might be too strong of a word because that really is like a more of a structural thing, but I do you know, I sort of think of it as like tithing part of my income to directly to marginalize, you know, people's PayPal's, you know, I make sure that I, when I see fundraisers for things, I give percentage of my income to those people directly. I also give regular money to an indigenous organization in Cleveland. Um, since I'm living back on, back on this land that, you know, didn't originally belong to European settlers. And um, so practicing, like giving, literally giving money away also feels um, not getting totally at the root of capitalism, but it's, it feels like a harm reduction practice, especially as, as a white person who now has some, some economic stability, certainly more than I did growing up. So that also feels important. And um, yeah, those are some things.
0: Yeah, no, I I love that. I'm personally incredibly interested in this. So and, you know, trying to learn more and trying to practice this more. So I'm grateful for everything you shared. I mean, I guess resource wise, uh, is there anything that you would point people to? Like, is there a particular book that was really useful in informing for you or any anyone else who's really talking about this that you have learned from that you want to?
1: Yeah, Shout I mean out. there's a whole like I mean the the communist manifesto by Karl Marx is, right. is like a great place to start. Um but there's you know there there are some really wonderful I would say like current writers talking about the way capitalism sort of shows up um harmfully in in like contemporary society. Kim Kelly is a great labor journalist. Um Sarah Jaffe, also a great journalist. She just wrote a book called "Work Won't Love You Back" that I reviewed and really, really loved. That's a great title, by the way. Yeah, it, work it won't really you is. back. Like, it's too yeah. real. Oh my gosh! I th- say <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think you'd really like it. I mean, it's very much about like, you know, late work is exploitative, even if you actually love what you do, even if you get like joy and passion out of it. And there's so many of us in. Um, it, it, there were so many of us that are being pushed to like, oh, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And it's like, okay, well, there's 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 still maybe exploitation. And I think there's ways around that for people who work for themselves. But it's still we're all trying to survive in this capitalist system that is like making us work more to to get money. Anyway, so yeah, Sarah Jaffe, Kim Kelly, and then also for folks who come from wealth, which I do not consider myself part of that. My my. My mom is still in poverty, but for, for folks who do, especially white folks, there's an organization called resource generation that I think is doing pretty great work, helping people who have like actual assets and like fam, like thing words that I don't even know about, but like fancy things that rich folks have, like stock, like I know the word stock, but things like stocks, but also just like things that people with wealth have like helping those Children of those wealthy families redistribute their wealth in ways that, you know, could maybe start to create some attempts at like putting dents in in the system so that um, like rich families staying rich doesn't stay that way. And and actually doing sort of like a radical version of philanthropy. Um, So that's called resource generation. And I recommend it. They're doing cool work.
0: Yeah, I it was a I hate to say this right like Instagram activism, but it was a like a slide carousel thing of theirs sometime last year on wealth through distribution that really helped me think about like percent actually getting really real about okay what percentage of my income am I
1: mm-hmm.
0: like able to give away and then like what feels a little bit uncomfortable but not in a way that makes me in trouble right like really thinking yeah. through some of those questions well, it was really useful for me so yeah. Yeah. Um, You mentioned that maybe as a self-employed person that there's potentially some like ways around some of that exploitation. It was just like a quick thing that you said when you were just talking. Will you talk about that a little bit more?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm still I've still never been like fully self-employed. I'm I'm, um, about to be more so than I ever really have been um, after my current job teaching job ends in May. And I'm both incredibly excited for that and also very scared. Yeah, relatable. I've, I've been self-employed
0: in some capacity for like over 10 years. So very, very happy to talk about the yay and the ugh part of it Yeah, at any yeah. point.
1: <laughs> yes. I'm sure that I, yes, will follow up with, yes, more like just, I don't know, venting and fears and excitement and all the things. <laughs> totally. But, um, but the, the reason I say there's sort of ways around that is, I mean, if you're, in theory, if you're self-employed, certainly there's a lot of self-employed people who now do have, um, you know, hire people, but there's a way basically for like, if you're making your money from people who are, you know, paying you for a service and you aren't using anybody else's labor to sort of create that, that service, then there's not really an exploitation of labor other than in theory your own. But if you're like setting your own, boundaries and parameters around what you want to do, then that, that sort of model of what the definition of exploitation is, it, it, like doesn't, it doesn't actually quite fit because it's like, okay, well, I'm offering this coaching service, for example, let's say that, to a person who wants to you know give me their money for this service and, and, and I'm not exploiting anybody else's labor in order to do that that's like a possibility. Now that said that person who's giving you their co- that money for coaching, like we, you know, they very well could have made that money from the exploitation of somebody's labor, or they could have had their own labor, you know, severely exploited to do that. So it's not like totally pure, but I think that there are, um, that to me feels like a potential like harm reduction in terms of also like your own, like mental health and desire to like resist exploiting your own labor. Mhm. Yeah, I'm really
0: interested in this topic. I like I mentioned have been self-employed in some capacity for quite a long time and for many many years I was a horrific boss to myself. Like I was a worse boss to myself than anyone else, well, with an exception. With one <laughs> with one glaring exception. I was a worse boss to myself than anyone else had ever been and it took me a lot of unpacking of just sort of like deep stories about rest and who deserves to rest and why and what do you have to earn and before you can Like take time off. There's there's just like a lot that was like really wrapped up. I I mean, I think I'm still constantly sort of like it's like the onion, right? Oh, you got through this layer. Oh, cute. There's another layer, and it like comes up in a different way, and. Yeah, it's it's just really, it's a really interesting topic. And I have recently talked to a couple of, you know, friends and acquaintances and people in my Patreon community who in the last year, year and a half have become self-employed, like whether by choice or because they lost their job and they're trying to make something else work. And so many of the fears and experiences that they're having at the beginning, like I can relate to it so much that like, it's that fear space of... Oh my god! I can't ever turn down work, and I have to, you know, work all hours of the day, and I can't take breaks, and I haven't done enough, and like technically, you're never off the clock because all you need is the laptop, and it's always there. It's like an interesting, it's an interesting thing, and obviously, you know, your point of there's no one else probably there that's being exploited, but then, and maybe this is like too much of an offshoot to everything else we're talking about, but how do you not? Exploit yourself. I know it's not quite the same, but I do think there's something in there that's interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I could certainly respond to this as a former acad- like full time academic because it's very much that academia also felt like a loophole to me. The reason why I decided to go do that is because I like interned at a nine to five nonprofit, and th- I mean, I literally felt like physically sick. I, I hated that sort of structure so much and in academia you technically yeah you are technically being exploited because there are administrators who are making like seven times as much money as you and you know benefiting from your teaching classes for like not ma- and not making very much money but it's common in some academic departments that like you don't you're like your chair is not like the chair of the department is not going to like breathe over you while you're making your syllabus or like observe your classroom so really like you're responsible to your students and like i love teaching so that didn't feel like that didn't feel like an exploitative dynamic in the classroom itself, but that said, like, and it, well, okay, well, I'll, I'll bracket that for a second. And then, but then you're also, you know, you're supposed to like be researching and writing kind of like all the time, and there's no clear because it's not nine to five. There's like you could literally be working on journal submissions or book book edits for these things that are supposed to magically get you a tenure track jobs that you know pretty much don't exist anymore um, for any of your Listeners who are from academia, though, they will know, they will know this story very well, but you're supposed to just like work, 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 work nonstop. And a lot of us love it. Like a lot of us love writing and thinking and doing this stuff that certainly for me growing up in a blue collar, like working class town with a single mom who worked really shitty jobs. Like it felt like the dream that I was like getting paid to like write and read like that felt like mind blowingly easy. But I was, I would literally work every single day. I never gave myself a day off and, you know, sometimes to like, you know, very late at night because boundaries just felt really impossible when they weren't being sort of enforced. And so it's very much like a double edged sword. I understand how it can be like that. So that's just like my experience, again, not of self-employment, but of a, like doing what I love that doesn't have clear, clear set start and end points. And the way out of that was just like doing boundary work. (laughs) Like it was just like learning boundaries and maybe it would be harder. Uh, you know, there's so much in academia that is exploitative. Like they, you know, if you, if you don't have that magic tenure track job, then you get over overloaded with classes that, which means you have stacks of grading, which means you know, there's like all these, all these problems. So it became easier for me to be like, I actually don't want to work on this. They, oh, also, you don't get paid for research. Like, you don't, you literally, nobody, nobody pays you for your writing. You just do that to like make it look good on your, on your CV slash resume. It's what we call it in academia. I mean, I guess we call that, that a bunch of places people know what a CV is. Anyway. Um, so any, so it was like, wow, I don't want to like write something for free at midnight that may make it make me like lucky for a job in five years. Like, I don't, want to do that anymore. (laughs) And so that, um, it's, uh, yeah. So it's like boundary work and just like choosing how you want to spend your time. Like what's that quote, how you spend your time is how you spend your life. And it's like, when you like sit with that, it's like, oh shit. And maybe sometimes the answer is you do want to work. Like now that I'm trying to freelance write more, like I really enjoy working on some essays. Like that's really enjoyable, but sometimes that's not, you know that sometimes that's not the choice you want to make and you want to like watch a TV show with your partner or something.
0: Right. I I appreciate the, the mention of boundary work. I think that's something that's been a big like point of learning for me around this specifically is I always thought about boundaries and boundary work specifically as it relates to like other people, right? You and other people and having to realize that boundaries are also a thing that I need with myself and that I know what it feels like when I'm like violating my own emotional consent or my own boundaries. And it's maybe more nuanced and subtle, but it was definitely, that's definitely been something that's helped
1: me. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yep. Um, So you
0: mentioned academia, leaving academia. Was there a particular day or moment or instance where you were like, yeah, I got to leave this?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, I was in my first job in Boston after getting my PhD was a year, a year long position that in the job call said potential to convert to tenure track. And again, for anyone who hasn't been in the academic job market or isn't super familiar with that world, when I got my PhD in 2013, that was like a pretty decent gig even though it meant that I had to uproot myself, like, and at the time my part, we broke up right before we moved. But in, in the beginning stages of this, it was uprooting myself and my partner, um, at the, my former partner to across the country for a year and just cross your fingers that it might like last for more than a year. That was like very normal and like kind of good. The only thing better than that would have been an actual tenure track job where you move and hope that in three years they will like you enough to keep you. And it's not even about liking, it's, you know, an arbitrary varying set of guidelines that each school has. So I was like, okay, I'll do this, this is what I've trained to do this is what I'm supposed to do. So I did that. And I was sort of, I think, strung along sort of felt like a, um, people make metaphors about like abusive relationships in ways that I think are really problematic. Like an abusive relationship is different than an institution. And also there are some parallels to like how I felt very like, let on and, you know, like they would do something really nice to get me to you know, stay for something. And then I would like, and then they would like pull out their promise about something else, like just really messed up back and forth kind of feelings in ways that again, not an exact parallel, but sometimes didn't feel dissimilar to that kind of like push and pull and in unhealthy relationships. So I did that on a year to year basis. It was like, it would be like, May of the end of the school year, like two weeks before classes ended. And it was like every year I didn't know if I was going to have a job again the next year. And then at the last minute, they would like find a way to like keep me in some kind of position. And that lasted for four years. And, uh, I was, and, and that, that last year, I really thought that they were finally going to turn it into a tenure track position. Like a bunch of people were like saying, yes, it's going to turn tenure track. But they were also saying, "But we can't promise. So you should still go on the market and see if there's anything else, any other jobs that you would, you know, that you should also try for." So that was happening. Where Merrimack was maybe going to pan out or not. Sorry, I'm going to say their name on the air. I don't care. <laughs> they, they, they did. They, it's fine. You can all know it's a school in Boston, um, outside of Boston. And um, that happened the same year that I also had an interview for a job that I was a runner up for and campus interviews to get academic jobs are really like exhausting three day long ordeals where you like, are just like in meeting people and on for like 10 hours, three days in a row, doing presentations, having meetings, like do, you know, performing your best self to try to get this job. And I really thought I was going to get it and I was really excited about it. So I was like, I can even make peace with the fact that I might not get the job in Boston because I think I might get this job in, it was Minnesota. And I was just like, so I was like, I think it's finally going to happen. I'm going to land somewhere, and then I didn't get that job. And when that happened, and then I also didn't get the job in Boston. So it was like these two, these two things that I thought I was going to have some, have something to hold on to. Both of those went away, and I went through probably the most. Um, it was, it was a dark, dark depression. Um, one, one of the hardest ones, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that I haven't struggled with, uh, I have mild depression and anxiety, but I I haven't struggled with like long depressive episodes, like sort of periods. This was one of them for like a few months. It was really, really, really dark. And I just knew that was like February or March of, um, 2018, I think. And I just knew that I couldn't do it again. Like I Mm -hmm. collapsed on the ground in public in tears, kind of drama, knew that I could not go through that again. You know, it was also so much grief about giving up that identity that I had fought like so long and hard for, um, and banked on like for so long, but I just knew I couldn't, I couldn't keep doing it. So that's, that's kind of a long version of that story. But it was, I mean, I remember, I thought I was going to get the the call from the Minnesota school. And I was right, I knew they were going to email me on a particular day. And I was so sure that it was going to be right. And I like went to a coffee shop. And I like, was like, so excited. And I was going to like, you know, stop working for the day early and meet my partner for a movie. And we were going to go see uh, one of the whatever Fifty Shades movie was. I haven't even seen like the first. I think it was like a Fifty Shades sequel, which I and I hadn't even seen the first one. But I was like, it'll just be so fun. Like we're gonna have something to celebrate. Like we'll just like go see this dumb movie in the middle of the afternoon. Like it'll be so great. And then I didn't get it. And so I'm like in a movie theater watching the Fifty Shades of oh Gray sequel. <laughs> like so, like yeah, it was a very vivid day, and I was just like, oh my gosh, like who am like who am I anymore? So anyway, it was, it was, it was really dark. And, and the, the one last thing I'll say about this before I sort of stop talking, telling this long, long version of it is that, um, this it's still true. I very much identify as somebody who left academia, but I, at this point, I still teach college classes, but in a very different, um, as an, mostly as an adjunct, which means that I get, you know, I, I teach by the class. I'm not, I'm not, Um, sort of beholden to any school on a contract, or I have no security from any school on a contract is a better way of putting it, Um, which is normally a very, talk about exploitation of labor. That's very, that's like a very bad position. If you want to be an academic to be an adjunct, it means like you get paid way less, you have no benefits, you have no security. But for me, the big shift was um, when I decided, okay, my identity is actually not an academic, my identity as a writer who may adjunct on the side, that felt very different than like, I'm a failed academic who can only get adjunct gigs, if that makes sense.
0: It totally makes sense. I mean, one of the things that I was going to ask you or like that I started thinking about as you were talking was like specifically if there were one or two things that you feel like helped co- helped you cope with losing a part of your career-based identity and maybe what you just said is the answer. But is there anything else that comes to mind that like helped you to cope with that transition?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um... That I mean, I'll just reiterate that one because it's so huge. Like, just I mean, again, that sort of like radical acceptance. But like, okay, I I'm I'm and practicing grief around that. You know, letting yourself grieve that, and then just sort of like claiming a new identity. And it was like, oh, I'm actually going to have the guts to call myself a writer, which I had never, I hadn't done ever, even though in academia I was writing all the time. But like, you just like that's not how you frame yourself in that in in those spaces. So that's a huge one. Second finding connecting with friends one who were going through similar things because there was a lot there's a lot of academics kind of always who are going through this so I became very close with somebody who's going through um the like the very basically the very same thing like being had been strung along sort of on year to year contracts and it didn't pan out but then also connecting with your friends who have nothing to do with academia or whatever job identity you're you're in you know so remembering that there is like life outside of this space felt super important and um gave me so much perspective like when you are at a party and your conversation is not about like i know i, I do love theory but like also like there's like life beyond making weird jokes about you know some obscure french theorist. <laughs> like that's you know there's like bigger bigger conversations to be having so just like being in spaces with people who are not part of whatever identity of profession you're sort of giving up. It felt important mm-hmm. too. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, I want to go back to when we were talking about um, wealth redistribution, mm-hmm. a question that I, and and again, I'm not look, looking for you to be the capital E expert in this. I'm just interested in like your honest perspective. Um, I host weekly, um, discussion threads on my sub stack where I'll like pose a question and then a bunch of people weigh in and like talk to each other. And they're like really fun, generative conversations. And uh, a question that I posed earlier this year was how much money is enough for you? And mm-hmm. it was so interesting to see how people, thought through that, right, or self-defined it or how it was determined based on like where they lived or what their experiences of scarcity were, anything like that. And that's been making me think like that coupled with like some of the values that you were mentioning around wealth redistribution. How do you think for yourself about like enough and saving for the future, like, but not wealth hoarding, obviously? Like, I, I don't know. It's like such an interesting... I think that it's a really interesting question. I think that it's a particularly interesting question that I feel like I'm only having with people who are in like a similar financial space than me. Like, obviously, I'm projecting, but I like don't imagine that Jeff Bezos is sitting around having these
1: conversations, <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> right. Um, and yeah, I don't know. So, how yeah. do you think? How do you think about that?
1: Yeah, it's it's t- it's it's a very it feels like a very difficult qu- question, especially um, having grown up with out seeing my mom not have a lot of money is maybe a better way to put it. Um, and which is also an understatement. Like we were, you know, late on bills, sometimes without utilities kind of situations off and on and not feeling, not feeling the need to hoard because of that fear about really, really needing to have like a cushion so that I'll never be in that kind of position again. And not even just me, but my my mom, who is still who who is still in poverty, and who I gladly and happily support when I can, and and she's in a situation now after years of trying to like get the government to believe that she's actually disabled, which she is, which is a whole another again another thing that could be its own episode in terms of like what the you know what our nation does to people who are human beings, but just, like, not deemed, like, productive people to human bodies to capitalism kind of thing. Anyway, so she's finally in disability. She can, um, she's, like, hanging in, but she's in, she's one of those many people in America who, if something really bad happened, like, she wouldn't be able to afford, you know, afford something that would, like, that sort of, like, emergency stash. Like, she's not, she doesn't have that. And so I, I consider myself like to, to have that for her. And so that feels really important to me to have money for my mom. So I will just like name, name that as like in my personal specific situation that said, like, I, I don't know, like there isn't like a magic number. Like, I don't like, I don't know how much that is. And I also like, yeah, I'm now in a place where I'm like, I like, traveling i like getting my eyelashes done i would like more tattoos like you know these things that i like no i don't need you know all, all the all the stuff that it's like wow it's really nice to know that i could like stash some money away for like some fun pleasurable things and that feels really 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 hard to have to have that and you know still choose to you know, quote, only give X amount to a particular Venmo that I see on, on Instagram of somebody who needs it, you know, kind of thing. And I don't think, yeah, I don't think there is a magic answer. I think that I saw, I saw the thread that, that you, that you posted about that. And I like literally have had it open and like, haven't read through it all, but I'm like, I want to come back to that. But I think like having these kinds of discussions is really helpful. And I also think that you're so right that like rich people probably like super rich, wealthy Jeff Bezos types of people like probably don't have these conversations and that's very telling. And yeah, I mean, I'm rambling because like I've done a ton of like witchy sort of like money, money work, work around money, work around thinking about money. And, um, what I know as an anti-capitalist activist is that my individual choices are not going to make or break the capitalist system that I do know. I also really, you know, it's such a cliche now, but like the life mask thing, like, Also very real. Like if I gave away like literally all of my money and then my mom had an emergency, like, and I would have to like go fund me for like, you know, whatever, you know, I, the, it's, it's also important for me to know that I'm like, can be taken care of so that I don't have to like, um, be enough, you know, to, to, to so, so that I can have that. So that I, I don't know, I'm, I'm like rambling because I don't, I don't have, I, cause I don't have an answer, but. It's, yeah. Um, no, and, but I appreciate that because like,
0: that's what an honest conversation is. Right. Because yeah. I, I didn't expect you to be like, well, here's my 10 point perfect answer. Right. I mean, I certainly don't have one. I, um, do you know, bear a bear? They're my business coach. I don't know if you know know, their work at all. I am vaguely familiar. I know the name. I do know know the name. They're fantastic. Highly recommend. Very similar values. We were having a conversation about this in one of our sessions, and one of the things that they said, and I forgot who they credited this with, but it was someone that they had worked with, was um, the idea that you deserve to have a future
1: Mm. and that
0: it's, you know, the idea of almost bumping up against, well investing in the stock market to like have an IRA, for example, right? Like that type of stuff, like where is that at odds with values or not? And sort of Mm -hmm. this idea of you deserve to have a future in which like you are not trading hours for dollars, right? Mm -hmm. At a certain point or at a certain age or a certain level of ability, right? Like any of these things. And I don't know, I like really have sat with that. It was a couple months ago that they said that to me and thinking about, yeah, figuring out like what enough looks like for me right now and then doing whatever some like rough math is to like what is the savings that would need to be accumulated? I mean, granted, it all seems like monopoly money. I don't think I would ever get right. to whatever this number <laughs> is. That's like a separate question, but to be like, okay, and then not amassing more than that, right? And right. like thinking thinking about that has been at least helpful for me to sort of conceptualize like what enough is. And I also have struggled quite a bit I'm interested in when you just lightly mentioned your like witchy money work. I have a follow-up question. I want to know more about that. But I I have definitely struggled with giving myself permission to like thrive and not just survive. Like Mm -hmm. when you said travel and tattoos and getting eyelashes done, right? This type Mm -hmm. of stuff. Like we also deserve pleasure. It's not a competition of like, I don't know who can keep their needs the smallest and therefore is the most morally pure. Like there's something really fucked up in that as well, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm right there with you. I think, yeah, that's all true. And it's also like, um, it's just hard. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm, like, I'm not being so mm -hmm. inarticulate because it's it's just really hard. And one thing, um, I I wrote a newsletter about um, the concept of mutual aid uh, a few months ago. And uh, specifically from, from the sort of discussion that like, there's actually often not a lot of mutuality in When, for example, those like Venmos that you you know when people who need who need money and you give to their Venmo, it's unlikely that you're ever going to like get anything back from that person you who you may never meet or see again, which is you know obviously not the point. But like, so why do we use this term mutual aid to just to describe this what what could could feel transactional, and the actual like definition of mutual aid comes from an anar like a turn of the century anarchist theorist who um, studied nature and talked about how like nature and indigenous scholars and and, rather indigenous people have talked, had talked about this before Peter Kropotkin, um, did a European anarchist, but, um, because it's his, his definition, he talks about, you know, nature gives without the expectation of anything in return, because they know that the whole ecosystem in order for the whole ecosystem has to function, everybody has to like be okay. And, uh, I fully agree with that. And so one, one thing, like I, is there a way for me to like generously and without fear and, you know, scarcity, like give, because I, because I'm not, I am not more okay when I know somebody like literally can't afford rent one, one month or something. Can I practice that while simultaneously, like you're saying, like make space for, my, for for pleasure and also knowing that me not having pleasure isn't actually going to systemically ensure that everybody can pay rent all the time. Um, and so like holding all of those things at once feels complicated, but important to just like keep naming that all of those things can, can be true at the same time.
0: Yeah. It's like the ultimate both and both and. Yeah. Yes. And, <laughs> yeah. And sometimes the things that are the messiest are the things that are talked about least often and yet are the things like money affects every single person in some way. And yeah. so I'm I'm grateful that you are willing to have this messy conversation with me. So thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Can you give me an example of your witchy money work? One thing that you have done or that you do?
1: Yeah. Well, Sarah, have you ever had Sarah got a signer on here before?
0: I have not, but I, um, at the beginning of this year, I bought her moon book, the yeah. moon book, mm-hmm. 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 which is it's like so fantastic and is definitely informed totally. a lot of my own um, kind of practice this year.
1: Totally. Well, so yeah, I bring her up because, so yeah, I have, I have, she has a lot of, she had like, she has moon like planners and, journals. And then she has the book. And then she also had a moon, a money moon zine that came out a while ago. And that like talks about like money magic with the moon cycles. And she also identifies as anti-capitalist. And, you know, so through sort of a critical lens, that is a lot of like unlearning scarcity. um, That's something that I also really, you know, believe as as an anti-capitalist, like anti-capitalism teaches us to believe that there's scarcity when actually, if wealth was redistributed, like everybody would have enough of everything, including pleasure. Um, so, you know, it's not scarcity. It's just how it's, how the distribution is happening anyway. So practicing unlearning scarcity, learning, receiving, and using the moon cycles to like practice some manifesting, which is also like, you know, a complicated term that thankfully Sarah and a lot of other lefty, witches um, complicate and make sure that, um, you know, folks don't, Ignore that capitalism, white supremacy, ableism, et cetera, exist and make things hard to just like create, but that I do, I do believe in some, some of those magical principles of, um, uh, creating space to receive things. Yeah. Well, and, um, you know, folks can definitely look up
0: her work for sure if they're Mm -hmm. curious. I feel like there's so many things I wanted to talk to you about that we did not get to, which is fine. That's always the case when I have many, many questions. But is there anything
1: um, that we haven't talked about that you wanted to make sure that you mentioned? Well, this is random, but I just like had the realization that I talked about how gay my relationship was and then used he, him pronouns to describe my partner. Um, my partner is trans and I we are very queer and it's just something I wanted to mention. And try yep. in case that was confusing, That I was like, it's so gay. And then I'm like, my, my boyfriend named Logan. So anyway, that's, that's a note and uh, gosh, yeah. I mean, there's like a million more things I would talk to you about, but I don't know if there's anything like specific necessarily. Um, just that, yeah, I don't know. It was really fun to explore all those different like subsets of those, of those questions with you. Mm, yes, yes, yes. For me
0: too. You know, I I feel like we didn't even like scratch any real of the surface of your book. Although a lot of what we talked about, I feel like dovetails into you know topics and and stuff that are in your memoir. So for sure, for sure, um, that is a great and relatively quick read. Or at least was quick for me. I felt like I couldn't put it down. So I really Thanks. enjoyed your book very much. Thank you. Okay. I guess that's a good place to start to wrap up then. I would love to ask you if you could leave folks with one call to action based on this conversation, what would that be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a
1: small action to take? Yes. Call to action. Um, hmm. Anything that I like really learned that I, that I talk, can talk about with any confidence in terms of you know, anti-capitalist stuff in general is because I've been a part of like communities and groups. And I really do believe that change happens in in on collective levels. And I also know that whether it's because you're maybe like me and getting into your late 30s and feeling like you don't have the energy to like go to meetings and be a part of groups like I totally get that or if it's just cuz like you're nervous about joining a group whatever like I also get that but if there's a way to like even be tangential to a group that is already doing work it's just so much more effective than trying to like put the pressure on you as an individual to like be a good whether it's anti-capitalist or you know social justice anything like putting that pressure on yourself as an individual is just like also a tool of like white supremacy and capitalism to like make it about you, the individual, rather than like a collective. And so if there's anything you can tap into like a mutual aid group in your city, or like, even if it's just like following them on Instagram so that, you know, like know people to like Venmo, or you can like, if you have time to volunteer or like drop off donations or whatever, tap into groups that are already doing the work. If you can be a part of that group, cool. If you can just be tangential to it also cool and find ways to support it. So yeah, like, don't put the onus on you as an individual. Find other people as best you can. I think that
0: I personally very much needed to hear that again. So thank you for yeah, thank you for saying absolutely. that.
1: Mm-hmm. What's
0: the best place for people to find you to say hi online? Do you have a particular favorite
1: way to connect with new folks? Um, Instagram is probably yeah the that's the one that um, feels that makes that makes me feel least bad <laughs> yeah. in terms of like social media you know things that can, whatever. And yeah, that's a good place to connect. I, all, all of my spellings are confusing and maybe someday I'll change my handle, but I've had it for years. So it's rebel girl, Rachel, but there's no eyes in the word girl. So some, you can probably just search Rachel Angeli, which is also hard to spell. Cause I have an extra E in my name. Just look at the show notes. I bet yeah. that will be the easiest, but <laughs> I also am on Twitter and I don't dislike Twitter. I just, uh, um, it's just a different kind of space, but you can certainly follow me on Twitter as well, yes, which is and- the same, same handle. I will um, make sure that people can find you for sure from the links in the show notes. Retail, thank you so much. Thank you, Nicole. It was such a pleasure.
0: And that's our show for today. Our music is by Adam Day, who also handles our sound editing. Thanks, Adam. You're the best. And a huge thanks as well to every single member of our Patreon community for making this honest conversation, this entire podcast, and so much of my other work, like my twice-weekly personal essay newsletter called Good Question, possible. Your monthly funding allows me to keep creating resources and gatherings for folks who crave honest conversations, both with themselves and others. And I fully believe that these conversations can change our lives, our relationships, and our world. To join us, just come on over to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Our community operates on a shame-free sliding scale, so you can feel good about supporting this work from within your own means. So I'll see you over in the Patreon community, yeah? And until next time, I want you to know three things. First, that you are enough. Second, that you are not alone. And third, that I'm totally rooting for you.